All right, let's study this morning. I want to talk this morning about an important spiritual principle that has very powerful implications regarding the strength of our spiritual life and regarding the strength of our witness and the strength of our ministry as a church. And it has a direct correlation to what nine people are going to do in about an hour as they stand before the Lord and before us and say, I love the Lord and I identify with the Lord and the Lord saved me and redeemed me and I want to declare that to everybody. I'm His. And it also is... It echoes something that I saw and learned as we were gone on this vacation and we went to Washington and Philadelphia. And I learned some new things that have really just kind of sat in my heart um, that have a correlation to this passage this morning. This is kind of an obscure passage about the building of the tabernacle. It doesn't seem like it would have relevance to us uh, in, what is it, August now? Is it August? Okay, I've kind of lost track. In August of 2011. So let's take our Bibles and turn to it. It's in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 36. Exodus, chapter 36. The tabernacle was the most important building that Israel ever had, other than Solomon's temple. And it was actually a large tent. And this tent served as kind of the moving church for Israel during the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. The people never went into the tabernacle to worship because the presence and power of God would fill that space and Moses would go in to meet with him. But the, the power and the presence of God was so awesome and so amazing, something we've forgotten, I think, as, as a 21st century Christian church throughout the world, that the power and the presence of God is absolutely awesome. It's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be entered into, even if we're meeting in the ballroom of a Marriott, we're never to enter in just kind of casually like we're going to a ball game or we're going to Panera. This is the presence of the Lord. This is the house of the Lord. So we're to approach it with reverence and awe. And the people in the Old Testament with the tabernacle couldn't even go near it. And yet everything centered around it. Even when the people were rebellion, even when they didn't want to have anything to do, even when they were whining and complaining and murmuring against Moses. God said, you're going to place my presence right in the middle of the encampment so everybody can see three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here, three tribes here in the shape of a cross. And I'm going to be in the center. My presence is going to be in this tent in the middle. Now that image was overwhelming. Everybody knew that when the presence of the Lord was among them, there was power and strength and security, and there was also accountability. Now, don't let that thought just slip by you this morning, because that application, the, the application of that thought is very serious. As believers, we're told that we're indwelt by the presence of God, and we're called to be filled daily by His Spirit, which requires an intentional act of surrender and yieldingness to Him. So the life of a spirit-filled believer should look distinct. It should be unmistakable that the presence of God is in us. Now, for some people, that's a very odd, kind of surreal, uh, kind of supernatural concept, and that's exactly what it is. It's a supernatural concept. Before Christ, we're filled with self. We're filled with darkness. We're, fi we're filled with just junk and, and mess and filth. 
Everybody knows that, right? Before you were saved, you were filled with, with just garbage. But after you get saved, the Holy Spirit gets in there and he cleanses and he purifies and he redeems because God will never dwell in a place that's not pure. And he says, I will cleanse you and make you new and purify you and change you so now I can fill you. And when the Spirit fills us, listen now, it should be unmistakable and we should have the same characteristics as the tabernacle did. There should be power and strength and security, confidence without doubt, faith without wavering, and there should be holy uh, responsibility, a spiritual discipline that our lives are given and that we're and that we're purified by Christ and that He indwells and that we're set on our hearts and our minds on holiness. Christian life cannot be casual. It cannot be sometimes. It cannot be just, well, we'll try. It is a calling to be set apart and to be holy. So His presence indwells. And our churches should be filled with spirit-filled believers and they should have the exact same characteristics, whether there's 200 of us or 700 of us or 5,000 of us. Our doctrine, our lives, our maturity, our witness should be strong and powerful. And there should be that fire that I I heard Pastor Matt talk about a couple weeks ago, that fire that burns in us that causes us to stand firm and impact the lives of those that are around us. This is part of the reason why we named this church Harbor Rock Tabernacle. Because our desire from the outset has been that this will be the place where God's presence resides so He can stir us and change us and lead us in the way that we should go. Because how many of us know this morning, we're just ordinary people. What about you? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm extraordinary. Good for you. God bless you. I'm ordinary. And be honest, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know which way to go. I don't know how to find the way. It, is all have to, it all has to be given to the Lord. And we have to have the power and the leading of the Lord constantly filling us and giving His boldness to serve Him and to declare His name. To be able to say, Hallelujah, we praise Your name. Because listen, that's not natural, is it? That's not in here. Human nature doesn't say, oh Lord, it's away from us. Hallelujah, we praise your name. It is only when Christ fills us. It's only when the Spirit indwells us. And here's the secret of the presence of the Lord that we saw throughout the spring. His presence and His power significantly change what is ordinary into something that is dynamic and life-changing that can only be explained as His work. How many know that's true this morning? Take the ordinary and change it. Think about the people, you know some of them well, that were up here in the choir and the worship team. You know their stories. You know who they were before. You know who they are now. You see them praising the Lord. You see how the Lord has changed their hearts, who they are solely because of Christ. You'll hear it in testimonies in a little bit, how the Lord rescued people from sin, how He redeemed them, how He changed their heart, whether they grew up in a Christian home or whether they grew up Catholic or whether they were rebellious against the Lord from the outset. Whatever the case, 
Every single person came to the point of acknowledging Jesus Christ is the only way, He is the only possibility for me to be saved, and I'm going to give my heart to Him. And then that work of transformation takes place. And once He changes us and empowers us, guess what? We're called to stand boldly for Him. We're called to not let our convictions be hidden. To not put the light under the bushel and say, well, I'm a Christian, but nobody knows. I'm a, well, my closest friends know, and my, my spouse knows, and my kids, I, I think, I don't know, they never really see it. And We go to church, though. and No, that light, let that light shine before men that may see your good works and glorify what? Your Father who is in heaven. One of the things that impressed me so much as we toured Washington and Philadelphia was the incredible wisdom and courage of the Founding Fathers. I'm not being patriotic this morning, but I was struck at how much it contrasts the current state of affairs in our country. And it was ironic to us that while we were there, the politicians in Washington, and we actually got to sit in on on part of uh, the House of Representatives and see that, that was really a neat experience, but... It was ironic that while our politicians were debating how to keep the country from defaulting on its massive debt, a couple days later we were in Philadelphia at Independence Hall, one day before the 235th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And we heard, and we were on a tour, and we heard what they were talking about, and they said, you know, the signers of the original document had very diverse backgrounds, and they had different beliefs about government, and some of them didn't even really like each other. Adams and Jefferson were not friends at all. And yet they were guided by this common passionate conviction to form a new nation founded on the right ideals and the right values. And they were absolutely committed to it, even though they knew the cost. Ben Franklin summed it up best when he said, we must all hang together or assuredly we will all hang separately. In other words, if we don't stick with this and stay focused on the goal and stand firm, they're going to hang, literally, every one of us separately, and they're going to make an example to us. Now, here's what's fascinating about their determination. These men were not weak underdogs who were destitute and desperate and were just looking for a way to advance their cause. Many of them were very wealthy and very prominent already in the colonies. And many of them were benefiting actually from the English form of government they were in. They had no problem paying the taxes to the British. And it would have been easy and comfortable to just do that. And yet here they are giving all that up for what? To break out and form a new country without a king in which all men are created equal. To set up a system of government that had never been tried or tested before. They didn't even know if it would work. To fight with a small militia against the strongest army in the world. And what makes all of that even more powerful and amazing is that they put everything on the line and face potential treason and almost certain death just to stand for their beliefs. I want you to show you a picture, if you would, punch up the picture of the Declaration of Independence. This is the Declaration of Independence that we all know that was signed and, and we know that there's one name right there. I know some of you can't see it. There's one name, though, that stands out. What name is it? John Hancock. Everybody knew that. How many knew that? Raise your hand. Good. All right. You passed civics class for today. 
you would, go to the next slide. Let's close up on it. John Hancock's signature was very, very large on this document. When you think about the Declaration of Independence, you instantly think of John Hancock. Now, there's a story that goes around that Hancock, when he signed the document, said, there, I guess King George will be able to read that. But that's a myth. What I did learn is that what Hancock had to do was even more brash and more personally risky than just saying, here, I'm going to sign it big so the king can see it. The initial copy of the Declaration of Independence, you didn't know you are getting a history lesson this morning, right? That's all right. We all slept through history in high school anyway. The original copy of the Declaration of Independence was printed and distributed to the colonies on July 4th, 1776. And it only had John Hancock's signature on it because he was the president of Congress. They went to a printing press in Philadelphia. They made copies of it that he had his signature on. He was the only signature, and they distributed those. The Declaration of Independence that we're looking at right now was not the original one sent to everybody. This one, which was ratified and signed by all the delegates at the, at, uh, in Philadelphia, did not get signed until August 3rd. How many knew that? Let's see how you, oh, come on, you did, really? Good for you. You're a better person than I am. That means that for almost a month to the day, John Hancock was the only one who could be proven to be a traitor to England. Now think about that for a minute. We think of the Declaration as all those signatures we're looking at. But that first copy that went out to the 13 colonies, everybody started to trade it, and eventually, you know, there's always a spy in the group, eventually somehow it got back to England. That copy only had Hancock's signature on it. He stood alone. And in a sense, the, the strength of the country rested on his willingness to do that. Jefferson's writing was great, and Washington's leadership was admirable, and Franklin and Adams and Madison and all the other guys, they were pivotal. But Hancock was literally the only one with his name on the line. What does that have to do with Exodus 36 that we haven't read yet? How does it apply to our lives? Well, let's look at the passage. When we read about the specifications of the tabernacle, we see a very distinctive trait about the walls that holds this important spiritual truth. We're going to study it for a few minutes And then we'll go baptize the people that are standing for the Lord today. But let's read. We're going to start in verse 14. I know this is a lot of details and a lot of intricacies and measurements and all that. But stick with it because there's a phrase that's going to stick out here. Exodus 36, 14. Then he made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and 4 cubits the width. The 11 curtains had the same measurements. He joined five curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves. Moreover, he made 50 loops in the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the first set and made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was outermost in the second set. He made 50 clasps of bronze to join the tent together so that it would be a unit. He made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then he made the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits was the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There were ten tenons for each board, fitted to one another. Thus he did for all the boards of the tabernacle. He made the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards on the south side, 
He made 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenants, and two sockets under another board for its two tenants. Stick with it. Then the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 boards and 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, two sockets under another. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, he made six boards, two boards for the corners of the tabernacle the rear. There were double beneath. Together they were complete to top into the first ring. Then he did with both of them for the two corners. There were eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two under every board. Now you say, well, okay, that's wonderful. But what does that mean to me? Well, there's a lot that speaks to us here. If you look back at verse uh, excuse me, verse 8, you see that a man named Bezalel was the one who did all this work without a sewing machine, by the way. And he made all these curtains, the 10 curtains that made up the tent, each of them about 46 and a half feet tall and about six and a half feet wide, made of purple and scarlet and blue, kind of like, uh, the, just think of it like the curtains we have up here that are blue. He made all those to comprise the tent, and then he put them together with brass. And then he made curtains that went over the tent. These were about 50 feet tall and six and a half feet wide. But that's not what we want to focus on this morning. It's the boards that should really get our attention. Notice in verse 20 that these boards were made of acacia wood. Now, the acacia tree was known for its deep roots. It's a very strong tree, and Isaiah talks about it in his book. He says it symbolizes spiritual stability and resilience. It was also the wood that was used for the Ark of the Covenant. So these are spiritually significant boards. These are boards that have a lot of symbolism to them, not only in terms of spiritual strength and stability and power, but also as what comprised the place where God's presence had resided, the symbolic place of the presence was the Ark of the Covenant. It had the Bema seat on top where the presence of God would come down and sit on the seat and dispense mercy on the Day of Atonement. So this is all wrapped up together and you have now these boards. Now what's significant about those boards, if you look at the end of verse 20, is they stood upright on their own. Even when they're disconnected from everything else, those boards stood. Now, the tabernacle was constantly being disassembled and reassembled because every time Israel moved, they had to take down the tent and they had to pack it up very specifically according to God's instructions. And then they would take it to the next place and the next location. They would set the tabernacle up and then Israel would know where to encamp because they had to specifically be around the tabernacle. Actually, Numbers 33 records at least 43 different location changes. Imagine going camping for a month and a half, and every night you have to take down the tent and set it up in a new campground. You campers, how fun would that be? This is massive. This is a huge enterprise, and it wasn't easy. In fact, there were over 8,500 Levites that were designated to be ready to do the tabernacle service. And God was very specific, so moving day was dicey. There was a group called the Kohathites who just moved the tabernacle furniture, but they weren't allowed to look at it when they moved it. 
So they had to have the sons of Aaron come in and place coverings over it. So when they moved it, nothing was exposed. So if somebody didn't do their job, if one of the sons of Aaron was a little sloppy and placed it on sideways, and one of the Kohoites looked down and saw it, they died. So this is not just, all right, let's come back and take the speakers down, throw them in the trailer and go home. This was, this was incredibly specific. Kind of makes our teardown not seem so bad, right? I need to publicly affirm everybody that tears down each week. Wonderful job of taking this place down each week. Even kids walking through the hallways. That, that's a church in action. And it blesses me every week. This was a huge job because the tabernacle was designed to be movable. So when it was taken apart and the curtains came down and the, and the cross beams were taken apart, here you have all these boards and they're standing up. Now if you look at verse 31, initially they were, they were connected by little bars, little support bars made of acacia wood. But when those were removed, the walls didn't fall flat. And one by one, they'd remove the curtains, and then they'd remove the acacia bars, and then they'd go around and they'd start taking the boards down, one by one by one by one by one, until there was only one board left. may have been different every time, we don't know. But what was powerful about that is when there was just one board left standing, people could see with their eyes that the foundation of the tabernacle was held up by just that one board. See, the secret strength of the house of God was seen in the fact that one stood up even when the others weren't attached to it. Let me show you a picture of what this looked like, if you would. These are the boards. They were 46 and a half feet high and about, uh, I forget how wide I said they were, six and a half feet wide. So they were very significant sized boards. Now if you go to the next uh, thing, you see that they were held upright by these sockets. Now keep that image up there if you would, and let me talk a little bit and then we'll get down to that part. But these, actually I, I spoke wrong, these boards were um, 10 cubits high. Excuse me, I spoke wrong. That means they were 16 and a half feet high and about um, two and a half feet wide. The 10 cubits is significant because 10 in the Bible is, um, it represents responsibility when tested. You remember when Daniel said, I'm not going to eat of the Babylonian food. It was a 10-day test. You have other times where 10 is used in the scripture about the 10 lepers or the 10 virgins or the 10 days of tribulation that the faithful church in Smyrna faced in Revelation chapter 2. But what was significant, if Bobby, if you would go back a slide for me, I appreciate it. What was significant is that these boards stood upright on their own. Now that symbolizes that the Lord builds his house with those, listen now, who can bear the responsibility of trusting in him through difficulty, of being responsible to walk with him, of being faithful with him, and persevering through anything. There were 48 boards total which meant that they had to come from different acacia trees. Every tree at one point had been strong and sturdy on its own, standing as a symbol of spiritual resilience 
And yet, there came a time, because the house of the Lord had to be put up, that somebody came with an axe and started chopping at those acacia trees to be able to get boards that were going to be 16 feet high. Now, this is important. Because where the tree once stood as strength, now it was opened up and laid bare. And that cutting process would continue until the wood had been shaped for the specific purpose of supporting the place where God's presence would come and reside. There were no table saws. There was no way to shape it and plane it and do it easily. Somebody had to go to a tree and start chopping and make sure that they left a 16-foot piece of wood that they could then start to shape and cut according to God's specifications so that it could be used for the house of the Lord. In a sense, the tree had to be humbled. The tree had to be changed. No longer could it rely on its natural resources and metaphorically say to itself, look at my strength. I'm a powerful acacia tree. Somebody came and took an axe to it and reduced it and shaped it so that it could be used. And it would have taken a master carpenter because acacia trees are tough and strong. It would have taken a master carpenter to shape that wood. Now this is the spiritual principle of reduction. And I want you to hear that phrase. The spiritual principle of reduction is best embodied in John 3.30. When John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. The fact is that we cannot be useful to the Lord or be a strong foundation to the house of the Lord. And I'm not talking building now. I'm talking the body of Christ. We cannot be useful to the Lord unless we are first reduced and shaped by the cross. The master carpenter has to come in and he has to change us. And until our self which is the natural resource of personal sufficiency that we tend to fall back on and trust, even though it's a complete failure, until our self has been reduced and reshaped and conformed to his image. We cannot stand on our own. But once those boards were shaped, once they were changed, then they were completely covered in gold. That was a value that they did not possess before. It was a value that they did not earn. It was far beyond anything they were worth. What a picture of what Christ does for us. I'm worthless this morning. And you know what? You are too. And then Christ comes along and he says, No, you're precious to me. And you're so precious that I will come and I'll die. And I'll take your sins on me. And I will redeem you and save you and change you and purify you and cleanse you and make you more valuable than you could ever possibly understand. Because I bought you. You're mine. And he figuratively covers us with the gold of his nature and his character. And we don't deserve it. And it's not inherent to us. But he does it by his grace. And now he says, all right, you're mine. I shaped you, I formed you, I covered you in gold. You have my character. Now, listen church, stand firm. Now you stand firm. Every board was the same height and the same width. They all looked alike, but each one was unique to itself because it was formed from a different tree. And yet every single one of them was designed to be the only one standing. 
Now, Bobby, thank you. I got ahead of myself. If you go to the next picture, you see that each board had two silver sockets. And those silver sockets were at the bottom, and they gave the strength and the support to the wall to stand upright. Now, the Holy Spirit never gives any accidental or insignificant details in Scripture. How many know that's true? So the two words at the end of verse 20, look back at the text, the two words at the end of verse 20 are there to teach us something and to challenge us to answer the question, can I be that bored? If all the coverings and supports are stripped away and you and I don't have all the things that strengthen and encourage us, imagine this morning if we didn't have this church body and we didn't have all the copies of the Bible that are on our shelf and we didn't have safety and comfort and we weren't allowed to worship freely, could we still be that board that stands tall? There are millions of believers around the world that don't have the resources we have this morning. And I know we're not in a church building, but we have far more than they have. And increasingly, we know, guys, watch the news, we know that the tests and challenges and trying experiences are only going to increase. So will we stand? Like Hancock and Jefferson and Franklin, the opposition is relentless, and our convictions will shape how we respond. But unlike them, our enemy is not flesh and blood. And his goal is to shake us and cause us to collapse and to fall down at the first sign of problem. I don't know if you saw the video last night from the Indiana State Fair. If you didn't, go home and look it up today. I wanted to download and show it, but I don't know how to use YouTube. Yes, I'm old. There was a concert at the Indiana State Fair last night, a country concert, and everybody was in the stands, and there was a special VIP section right up by the stage, and everybody was sitting there, and then they said, you know, it's getting kind of windy, and all of a sudden, a 55-mile-an-hour gust of wind, and the stage collapsed like a Jenga thing when you're playing it. It just fell right on top of the people. Four people died. In a moment, when the wind came and the pressure came and the pressure changed, because how many know that when wind comes, the air pressure is changing? And that pressure changed. It'll change in your life. And it starts to topple because it's not strong enough. Even great men and women of faith have literally fallen down in the face of adversity. Elijah, when Jezebel put the hit on his life, it says he laid down under a juniper tree because he was so discouraged. Jesus' disciples, when the pressure came and Jesus was talking about leaving and they were so sad and, and, and felt helpless and didn't know what to do and why is Jesus acting like this and why is he giving us bread and a cup and talking about a new covenant in his body and what's all that about? We just want to know who's the greatest in heaven. And they go to the garden and Jesus is broken to the point that he's dripping blood. And he says, watch and pray. And they're... What does the Lord say to us in those times? He says to Elijah, you're not alone. Oh, Elijah, you're not the only board. There are others who have never bowed down to Baal and never will. 
He says to the disciples, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. In other words, be on guard. Don't give in. Ask the Lord for help. Stick to your convictions. And if you find yourself that you're the only board left standing, then stand firm. Our influence, listen now very carefully, our influence is so much more powerful when we're defending the Lord and holiness than when we're justifying what is biblically compromising. And yet, what's the world watching for us to do? It's true of the body. The body is those acacia bars. It's the the connection. This is the strength and the support so the house of God can endure. And our job is to be that support rather than walking around going, I got so discouraged this week when someone told me that someone else felt vindicated to participate in something personally and spiritually harmful because they saw other believers doing it. Is our liberty that important that we can't sacrifice what we may want so we don't cause another person to stumble back into what easily besets them? 1 Corinthians 10 warns us to not try the Lord. That when we think we're standing, that we better take heed lest we fall. That there is always a way of escape that the Lord gives us when we're being tempted and we need to take it. I wondered as I was standing there in Independence Hall how tempted John Hancock was to stay in his comfort and his wealth and to not make waves. He could have very subtly influenced other delegates to not challenge England if he had shied away from the bold step of standing alone. And in the process, honestly, he could have undermined the whole thing. We might not be sitting here today if he hadn't been willing to just sign his name and distribute it, knowing that it was treason. Knowing that if England came and found him, he was hanging. Listen, the power of this room is the greatness of our influence. We would never know John Hancock's name the way we do if he had said, somebody else needs to sign. I'm I'm not willing to go there. His influence was so great because he stood up. And the power of this room is not just that we worship and study together. That's wonderful. The power of this room is that each of us stands as an upright wall in the presence of the Lord and we now encourage each other to stand. Think about Joshua and Caleb who stood for the truth when everybody else doubted and they said the people are too big and the enemy's too strong and fear rolled. God says you're going to take them into the promised land. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who defied Nebuchadnezzar and said, we're not bowing down to your God. We're not bowing down to a statue of you, Nebuchadnezzar. Forget it. We don't care what you do. Just throw us in the furnace. We don't care. And the presence of the Lord came and stood with them and delivered them. Think about Gideon who God says, you got too many people. The army's too big, Gideon. Pare it down. Just get a couple hundred. You can defeat the enemy. And Gideon didn't say, what are you, nuts? Seriously? No way. Not doing it. God, you're going to give me more. Think about Nehemiah, who went back, 
because he was burdened about the city of God that had been desecrated. And he says to Artaxerxes, i got to go home. I, I, I need to, to restore. And then the two guys come along and say, you're not doing the right thing. You're stirring up the people in the wrong way. And the people are fearful. And Nehemiah says, uh-uh, we're going to stand firm. You have a tool in one hand. You have a sword in the other. We're going to do this. Think about Peter and John who stood up when the authority said, you've got to stop talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you. They said, fine, do whatever you want. We don't care. We're not going to stop talking. Think about Paul who was persecuted and stoned and shipwrecked and bitten by a snake that opposed by Festus and Felix. And he said, I'm going to talk about Christ until I die. Even talking to the prison guards, converting them so much that they had to change shifts more often because he was convincing them about Christ. Every one of them, listen now, every one of them was aboard. Standing when nobody else would, and because of that, they strengthened everybody else. Let me close with a real simple example of how the Lord blesses even the most minor stance for our convictions. And I'm not telling you this story. I have to say this as a preference. I'm not telling you this story to draw attention to what I did. If that's your takeaway, then you're not listening well. I'm telling you this story because it's a very simple understanding of how the Lord reinforces the importance of living out what we believe. First night on our trip, we got to Ohio. We stayed in the Hampton Inn. The next night, we were in Washington, D.C. in Virginia. Stayed at a hotel, nice hotel. When we walked into the hotel, we saw that you know, sometimes I have a little book rack. Well, all the books were spiritual. We kind of took note of it. Stayed there for three nights. On the next morning when we were checking out, I went and, and paid my bill. And she handed me the bill. And at the top of the bill, it said, you stayed from... 11th to the 14th, I think the day, I don't remember the dates, doesn't matter. Three nights, but I was only being charged for one. So I signed it, and it kind of just struck me weird, and I walked up, I had to get some more things in the room, and I'm coming back down the room, I looked at the bill, and I said, they only charged me for one night. And I wondered if my father sometimes will pay our bill, I said, whether he had paid it, he hadn't, I knew he hadn't even know where we were staying. And for a brief moment, I said to myself, oh, that's nice. Save me a couple hundred bucks. And then I remembered something a pastor said once. He said, the Lord will not bless you if you continue in known sin. I knew I owed them a couple hundred dollars more. Didn't really want to give it, to be honest to you. But I knew I had to make it right. So I walked back up to the desk and I handed it to the girl and I said, I don't think you charged me for enough nights. And the look on her face was priceless. She looked at it. She, she said, we don't have any, anything in the computer that says that you stayed more than one night. I said, well, honestly, I've been here for three. She said, let me talk to my manager. So she walks back in the back. And as she walks back and she's talking to the manager, the, the maintenance guy comes out. And he looks at me and goes, I was joking with him back there. This guy's complaining that he hasn't been charged enough. He said, man, it really shows your character that you would say that. She comes back up and she says, well, first of all, my manager, I was surprised he didn't come out, but nevertheless. 
She says, my manager wants to really thank you for being honest because we didn't have a record of this. She said, he's going to take a night off your bill, so it'll only be two nights instead of three. Now, that's small. It would have been easy to get in the car, drive away, have a little bit of guilt, but here's what I knew. I knew the day before I had talked about the devil in church, and I knew that we had six hours to drive, and you don't want to mess with that. Right? You don't want to give the devil an opportunity to now attack because you haven't been faithful to the Lord. And it's an opportunity to get back in the car and say to my kids, here's what the Lord did. Let's close our eyes. You know, this message may have been for you this morning. It may have gone right to your heart. Maybe the Lord's really spoken to you about the need to be set apart and to stand for Him. Even if it means that you're going to have to be alone to do so, it may be something as simple as a hotel bill. But you know that the Lord won't honor you and won't bless you unless you first stand for what you believe. Now, nine people are about to do that. They're about to be baptized. But maybe this morning, it's matter for you to finally come to that place in your life where you say, Lord, I'm completely yours. Oh, I've believed. And at one point, I gave my heart to Christ. And I'm kind of trying to do my best. But now, I have to live it out all the time. I'm going to be that board. I'm going to be the one who stands upright morally and practically. The one who signs his name and says, this is my conviction. Christ is my Lord. Now I want to give you the opportunity. Parker's just going to keep praying. Everybody's eyes are closed. I want to give you the opportunity. If the Lord's doing that in your heart this morning, and this is not just a momentary decision because something has touched you emotionally. This is, this is now, okay, this is my conviction. This is how I'm going to live. I want you to get up out of your seat and I want you to just come stand or kneel right in front of the platform. It's early. We're not in a rush to get anywhere. But you're going to say, Lord, it's time. I, I've, been, I've been doing okay but I haven't been sold out. I haven't really given myself the way I should. I'm going to be that board. And even when everybody else is removed, even if my family and friends call me crazy, I'm going to be that board that when everything's removed, I'm still standing. Let's just be quiet before the Lord. Parker's going to play. If that's you, just come up. If it's not, that's fine. Listen, that may not be your conviction right now. I pray it will be soon. Or maybe you're already there. That's fine too. Praise the Lord that God's working your life that way. just between you and the Lord doesn't matter how many come could be one, could be fifty, doesn't matter 
This is not about a false promise. This is about saying, Lord, it's time. It's time I get my act together. It's time I really give myself to you. No turning back. I'm done. I'm done with self. You know what? The Lord will bless you. The Lord will work in your lives in unbelievable ways. The Holy Spirit will fill you more and more and you'll start to understand what His power is in a way you've never understood it before. ask a couple brothers to come and pray with these who are standing up here. I'll come down and pray with them as we sing. But just a couple brothers or sisters to come up and pray with them. Encourage them. Intercede for them on their behalf to the Lord who will hear your prayers. We started that earlier from Psalm 86. When we cry, he'll listen. They're up here saying, Lord, I'm yours now. So let's surround them and pray for them. I feel convicted that we need to just keep being silent before we sing. Let's start to pray for them. Let's just, let's just keep being before the Lord right now. We'll sing in a minute. Lord is so good. He'll never fail us. He'll never forsake us. He will never not be present in time of trouble. He will never not answer when we call. We, we have the promises of God by the thousands. What He will do when we're faithful to Him. Lord, we ask you to work in these brothers and sisters' lives. We know the enemy is going to come hard now. So we pray as we go to the baptism that you'll reinforce the commitment that they're making between you and them this morning. That they will know that the board can stand because you will form it in a way that it will stand on its own. We thank you for the body. We thank you that we can support each other and strengthen each other and build each other up. But Lord, when it all comes down to just you and us, find us faithful. We thank you for how you're working in our lives. We thank you for how you're working in this church. We thank you for those who are going to stand for you today. Bless us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay up here. We're going to come down and pray for you. If any other brothers and sisters want to come up and pray for them, please do that. We're going to sing. But just stay up here. Let's pray for each other.